0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. A bone to pick with you all, I was listening to last week's message, and at one point I was trying to make a podiatry joke. I used the word pediatric, and not a one of you pointed it out to me, called me out and said, are you saying you have little baby feet? No one said anything. Jim, you're not making a baby joke. So do you like the Bible? Yes. Because you're going to hear a lot of Bible this morning. Are you sick and tired of hearing me talk about Israel? No. Because you're going to hear a lot about Israel this morning. Why? Because, well, Paul's still talking about Israel this morning. And Paul, in building his theological argument, keeps making reference back to what we call the Old Testament. And so let me make this statement one more time and see if I can clear up the common assumption that once Jesus is here, that the Old Testament is sort of done away with. There is a very well-known popular preacher out there who recently... Went on record as basically saying that we have to separate, sort of divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. Now that we have the New Testament, the Old Testament no longer has that sort of bearing. And so we can just separate that and just not pay any attention to it. Uh, You will notice, and you're really going to get a big dose of it this morning, that Paul's theology is all based in the Old Testament Paul's theology does say over and over again that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. That old covenant is the law that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And that covenant and that event and Mount Sinai and God's dealings with Israel are all recorded in the Old Testament. But even though the law is no longer the way that people can accomplish righteousness. We've seen that now a couple of weeks in a row, where Paul has said that Christ is the end of righteousness by the law. That's no longer the way that you get righteousness. But that doesn't mean that the entirety of the Old Testament is done away with, because there are a whole lot of promises in the Old Testament that are still unfulfilled, that still have to be completely satisfied. And you will notice how frequently Paul proves the theology that he is teaching the Romans via what he already knows from the scripture. I'm making bunny ears with my fingers that the people on the internet can't see at this moment. But the scripture for Paul was what we call the Old Testament. And he's going to keep going back to the Old Testament teaching in order to develop the theology that we're looking at here. Now, last week, we made it as far as verse 6 of chapter 11 of the book of Romans. Turn to chapter 11 of the book of Romans. We're going to start back at verse 1, and we're going to pay attention this time through to the Old Testament basis of what Paul is getting at. Never, never conclude that the Old Testament is done away with or is fading away. Paul uses that language specifically of the law, the law covenant. The law covenant is written in the Old Testament, but so is the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional ongoing covenant. We find that in the Old Testament. And we are certainly dependent on the Abrahamic covenant. So is the Davidic covenant. So is, by the way, the Noahic covenant. If you can walk outside today fully confident that God is not going to flood the earth again, that's because you're depending on the covenant that God made with Noah. Where do you find that covenant? In the Old Testament. In what Paul called the Scriptures. So you cannot just do away with the entirety of it. When Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. He was talking about the whole of the scriptures by the nickname, the law and the prophets. Many times I've said to you, the word Tanakh, a very common Hebrew word, means the Torah, the first part of the Old Testament, The Neveim and the Ketavim, which means the law and the prophets and the writing. And so that was a way of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. The entirety of the scriptures was the Tanakh. It was the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets... He's not abolishing them. He's not doing away with them. He is satisfying them. And he's still in the process of satisfying them because there are still prophecies in the Old Testament that need to be fully satisfied here in time. And that is the basis for all our New Testament, New Covenant theology. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay. Did I use the word pediatric anywhere in that explanation okay I just want to be clear about that Romans chapter 11 verse 1 says I say then God has not rejected his people has he boy you better be really really happy that the answer is no because we consider ourselves to be God's people But in the context of what Paul is discussing at this moment in the letter to the Romans, he's talking about national Israel. And now that Gentiles are beginning to come to faith in Christ, what we're going to see later in this chapter is that apparently some of the Gentiles were saying, well, yes, we've been brought to Christ because he has completely written off Israel. And his question here then is, I say then, has God actually rejected his people Israel? And his answer is, may it never be. No, nada, goose egg. Don't even think it. Don't even pretend it. He's saying it emphatically. There's no way that you can state that God has completely done away with or rejected Israel. Now, where does Paul get that thinking? Is he just making it up? Is he just post-Christ saying, well, I can't imagine that he would do such a thing. No, he's actually saying exactly what the scripture has already said over and over and over again about God's relationship with Israel. All Paul is saying is exactly what the Bible has already said. Why don't you show that to us, Jim? Okay, I will. Starting in Jeremiah 31, after the new covenant has been laid out, starting in verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and a fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. He says this, verse 36, if this fixed order, sun, moon, stars, waves, If that fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and if the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for everything that they have done. Declares the Lord. Where is Paul getting his thinking? He's saying what the scripture has already said God Himself has already declared Israel will always be not just a people group, but a nation before me forever. So when somebody says, Well, then can God cast off Israel? He has the sure word of God to stand on in saying, No. No, may it never be. Oh, but wait, it's not just that verse. It's not just one passage tucked away in Jeremiah 31, which is, as I said, the promise of the new covenant. But then you go over to Jeremiah 33 and you read, starting at verse 14, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Hold on, I want to really plant this idea in your brain. Because it's really going to come up as we continue through chapter 11, especially next week. So you're going to have to hang on to this for a whole week. Can you do that? Okay. Hold on to the fact that Israel, the northern tribes, the house of Israel, and the southern tribes, the house of Judah have been at enmity with each other for a very long time. Ever since, going back to the time of Solomon, his son Rehoboam becomes king. God takes away the northern ten tribes from him, and then they go into apostasy. Ultimately, God drives them into the Assyrian captivity, and they have not returned to their land, to Canaan, ever since the Assyrian captivity. As a result, the southern tribe, which was kept intact so that Christ could come to the tribe of Judah. They were still kept intact, and they started believing that the northern tribes were cast off by God once and for all because of all that they had done, all of their idol worship, all of their sins against God, all the ways that they had, to use biblical language, played the harlot. And so Israel and Judah, house of Israel, house of Judah, were actually at enmity with each other. You're going to hear over and over and over again this morning, I'm going to read verses for you from the Old Testament where God promises to regather the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that he's going to take away the enmity that is between them and they are going to be one nation, all 12 tribes. You have to know that in order to understand Paul's later statement that all Israel is going to be saved. You got all that? Got it. Hold on to that for a minute because behold, days are coming, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 33, that he is going to fulfill the good words that he has spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's Jeremiah 33. What good words is he talking about? He's talking about the words in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the way, when that same phrase is repeated in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the longest verbatim quote taken from the Old Testament that you find in the New Testament, it is again made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The language doesn't change. God in the New Testament is still saying the same thing that he said in the Old Testament, which is that he's going to gather all 12 tribes, northern tribes, house of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the house of Judah. And God declares he's going to do. He has spoken it concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and he's going to fulfill all those good words that he has spoken about them. Verse 15 then says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Who's that? Jesus. That's Christ. I'm going to fulfill all the good things that I'm going to do for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How? Through Christ. Through the righteous branch through the branch of David, who's going to spring forth, he then shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And in those days, what days? In the days after Jesus has come to the planet, in those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called, Jerusalem shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. What's the whole book of Romans about? Righteousness. How do people get righteousness? Here they're finally going to come to faith in the righteous branch. And so their name is going to be the Lord is our righteousness. Verse 17 says, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the House of Israel and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and break my covenant for the night, So that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time. In other words, if you can suddenly make it break out noontime at two in the morning, which by the way, none of you have the ability to do. If you can ever break that covenant, then God says... If you can ever break my covenant by day, so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. Is it worth pointing out for a moment that David's throne is not in heaven? David never ruled from heaven. David ruled on planet earth Over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. So every time you hear about the throne of David and the son of David ruling on David's throne, that's always the promise that Christ is going to one day reign over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. David, my servant, he shall always have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers as the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured so I will multiply my descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah again saying have you not observed what this people have spoken saying the two families which the Lord chose he has rejected them Jeremiah is talking about the exact same thing. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel has been scattered. The house of Judah is in terrible trouble going through all these captivities as Jeremiah is writing. The Babylonian captivity is beginning. And he's saying, look at all these surrounding nations. Look at the Gentiles. What are they saying? They're saying these two families, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, that God has chosen, God has rejected because it seemed obvious that God had rejected them because they were taken into their captivities. And so the Gentiles start bragging that God is done with Israel. Does any of that sound familiar? Oh
1: yes,
0: Still happening to this very day. Here's what God says about it. He says, when people say that, they despise my people. No longer are they a nation in their sight, in the Gentiles' sight. No longer are they a nation. Remember that God just said, forever Israel will be a nation before me. As far as I'm concerned, Israel's always my nation. But the Gentiles are going to say that Israel is no longer the nation of God, that God has rejected them and cast them off. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for the day and the night Will not stand, and the fixed patterns of the heaven and the earth won't stand. I have not then established them. And then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them where did Paul get that no never no God can't reject Israel because he's standing on the very word of God the word of God has already declared that God is not going to abandon or reject Israel you can go see it in first Samuel 12 all the people came to Samuel asking if they could have a king and then God agrees with the people and says all right give them a king They're going to get a ruinous king. They get King Saul. And then all the people, starting at 1 Samuel 12, verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves to have a king. So Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver you, because they are futile, for the Lord will not abandon his people. Why? Now we're going to get to the core of it. Why doesn't God abandon Israel? Not because of what Israel does or doesn't do. Not because Israel keeps the law for righteousness. There is one reason why God will not abandon Israel and it's right here. The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. This is all about God. This is all about God's glory. So can you see then when people would say, well, then has God rejected Israel? Well, then has God abandoned Israel? Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, one who knows the scripture inside and out would say, now, what does the scripture say about that question? Mm -hmm. Wait, let's think about it. The scripture says, no, no way, don't even think about it, don't even pretend it. So, of course, Paul would say that very same thing. No, God, for his own great name, for his own reputation's sake, chose to make Israel a people for his own good pleasure. He's not going to turn his back on his own good pleasure. He's not going to change his mind. We sang this morning, Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever. We sang that on purpose because God is the same yesterday, today, forever. There's no shadow of turning. There's no changing with God. And for God to choose to make Israel his chosen people, his elect people, his beloved people, his wife, in fact, he refers to them, if he could make them all of that and then say, oh, never mind, then you have no confidence. You have no basis for your faith. You're believing in a God who changes his mind willy-nilly. I say then, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Last week, I camped on that for a moment because theologically, you ought to be really, really happy that that's the way God has presented himself as being. He does not reject the people that he foreknew. But notice how Paul uses the language of the people he foreknew. Because back in chapter 8, we already saw the sequence that we call the golden chain of redemption, which we're very happy to apply to ourselves. But the golden chain of redemption starts with, whom he did foreknow, he predestined. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, those that he predestined, he called and he justified, and he glorified, and it all starts with the people whom he foreknew. So Paul has already told you his theology of God foreknowing people, having relationship with people in advance. He has already described what it is to be foreknown by God, and he's already told you what the benefits are of being foreknown by God, so then naturally he would state, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Because we like it when we read the golden chain of redemption, and we say, yeah, God foreknew me. It's all about me. But he uses that same language, after he's developed the same theology, that language of foreknowing resulting in glorification, And then he took that same language and applied it to Israel. After stating that God has not rejected Israel, he then states that Israel is foreknown by God. And because they're foreknown by God, he cannot reject them. And you better be really happy that that's the way it is. Because again, you don't want a God who can say, I'm in relationship with you. I have ever loved you. With an everlasting love. I have drawn you to myself. Oh wait. Oh oh, you did that? Oh I didn't know you were going to do that. Oh never mind. You don't want a God like that. Instead you want a God who is consistent with you. So then who are you? To say that God can't be that same consistent with Israel. Amen especially as often as it's been stated in the Old and New Testament, that that's exactly what God is like with Israel. Are you sick of hearing me say Israel yet? No, Because I'm nowhere near finished saying Israel. But either is Paul. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he's going to go right to the scripture. Or do you not know what the scripture says? Say, as, as, say some word like that. Don't you know what the scripture says? That's the question I want to ask people all the time. Because I do hear people occasionally say, well, you know, God's done with Israel. It's, it's all about us now. It's all about the church. and It's all, it's all new covenant-y now. And so he's, he's completely done with Israel because they didn't keep the law. They chased after their foreign gods. He's finished with Israel. And my question for them always is, Do you not know what the scripture says? Because we just read some scripture where God said, nation before me, forever. Where God himself, who made sun, moon, stars, and waves, said, if that fixed order is ever changed, then you can say that I've gotten rid of Israel. I mean, God has already laid his creation on the line as the evidence and proof positive of the continuity of his love and commitment to Israel. And then wormy little people come along and say silly stuff. I had to edit myself right there and say silly stuff like God is done with Israel. And I have to say, don't you know the scripture? It's clear that they don't. The only way that you can make that statement is if you don't know your Bible. That's the only way you can get away with it. You can say it, but it's just evidence. You don't really know the Bible. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and they have torn down thine altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. This is when Elijah, as we mentioned last week, was running from Ahab and Jezebel, and he thought it was down to him. If Ahab and Jezebel ever catch up with me, they're trying to kill me, and if they get to me, it's over, God. There's no more believers in Israel. I'm it. But what is the divine response to him? God said to him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Notice that God takes credit for that. He did not say there are 7,000 really good, really faithful ones who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He said, I kept for myself. I kept them. I protected them. I hedged them about. I made sure that they didn't go chasing after Baal or after their foreign gods. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul then says, in this same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's election. The very fact that God would say, I've kept some for myself means that it's God doing it, it's God's electing grace that's doing it, it's God's choice, it's God's good pleasure that is doing it, so Paul says there is still a remnant in Israel and his evidence that there is still a remnant in Israel is himself, he's like wait, 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 if God has utterly abandoned Israel, how come I, an Israelite, am out here preaching Christ? How come I'm believing if God has abandoned Israel? And of course, later he's going to talk about uh, the proof of the resurrection and say that there's 500 who have witnessed Jesus. Go and check with them. You go and look at Pentecost and you find 3,000 believers who were converted at Pentecost and 5,000 soon after that there's 8,000 right there 8,500 that you can point at in the New Testament and say those are all believers who are all Jews who are all Israelites therefore God cannot be said to have completely abandoned Israel in the same way then there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious election. But if it is by grace, now this is all part of his larger argument. He's been arguing all along that righteousness comes by faith, not by the works of the law. Now he's returning to that big overarching theme and he says, If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And that's where we ended last week, which means all of this introduction. That's exactly right. I'm just showing you, demonstrating to you Paul's dependence on the Old Testament for what he is saying about Israel. Because the scripture has already declared God's intention for Israel over and over and over again if it's by grace it's no longer on the basis of works I said last week if you take the basic definition of grace we all know the common definition which is unmerited favor it just means that God has been kind to some people has been good to some people in a way that they could not have possibly earned being When you look at the way that the Bible describes us, it's why the Protestant Reformation said that men are totally depraved. It's why the tulip acrostic starts with that. Men are totally depraved. If you get the idea that we're totally incapable of obligating God to do anything for us, and then God does something for us, that has to be grace. Because our works have only served to condemn us. And the law has served to prove how sinful we are. So there's nothing in our flesh, nothing in our works that can be so good that we could obligate God. So it has to be grace. But Paul then says, and if this election, if this choosing, if this remnant within Israel is the result of God's gracious election, then it can't be by works. Let's flesh this out for just a moment. When people say God is done with Israel, what do they usually point at as their evidence for why God is done with Israel? They point at Israel's works. They say, but they chased foreign gods. They were a disobedient wife, and they played the harlot, and and they broke the law. And they sinned, and they sinned, and so that's why God did away with them. So that's why this language of grace is so very important. There is a remnant within Israel, says Paul. And the reason there's a remnant within Israel is because of grace. And if it's because of grace, it can't be because of works. Which means neither the good stuff they did nor the bad stuff they did caused God to reject them. Okay, let's apply this to you and me and Jeff for just a moment. If it's true that we're saved by grace, and we are, we sang it this morning, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. If it is true that we are saved by grace, then we're not saved according to our works, which means it's not your good works that gets you saved, and it's not your bad works that keeps you from being saved. God does not reject you on the basis of your works. He doesn't save you on the basis of your works. He doesn't reject you on the basis of your works. He's doing it all for the glory of his own good pleasure. He's doing it according to what he's happy to do. And thank God we serve a really gracious God who's really happy to save people. And Jeff. You get it? Okay. Verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious election. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Verse 7 starts with the words, What then? Paul does this regularly in this letter. He'll build his theology for a while and then he'll say, And then you're going to say to me, or he says, well then, well then what then? What am I talking about? What's my point? What am I getting at here? What am I driving at? Well then what? Here's his answer. That which Israel is seeking for. In the big context, what's the thing that Israel is seeking for? Righteousness. Righteousness. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. He's already told us why. Because they sought it without faith. They sought it by the works of the law. But those who were chosen, now he's talking about election still. So those that were chosen within Israel, the remnant, those that were elected, obtained righteousness and the rest were hardened now Paul later in this same chapter is going to talk about that hardening he has already talked about the partial hardening that has happened in Israel so he is giving God the credit for those Israelites who believe who have come to Christ and he's giving God credit for those Israelites who don't believe and saying God has hardened them a Partial hardening has come on them but he didn't just make that up it came from the scripture verse 8 says just as it is written God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that see not and ears to hear not down to this very day he's quoting from Deuteronomy 29 Now this is really interesting because this is when Israel was in the land of Moab. God had already made the covenant at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and now for 40 years they've marched through the desert. At the end of 40 years, God repeats all the law back to them, and in the process of repeating it to them, also declares that they're not going to do it. And here's what God says about it. Deuteronomy 29, starting at verse 1, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and all his servants and all the land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Think about it for a moment. What had Israel actually seen? They saw God bring a whole series of plagues against their enemies. And then God said, go out and borrow as much stuff as you can borrow from your Egyptian neighbors Because you're leaving here tonight. And then he delivers them in the night. And God puts a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke between Israel and the armies of Egypt. In order to give Israel enough time to go through the parted Red Sea. And holding back the armies of Egypt so that they could get through. Then he lifted that cloud, and then the Egyptians tried to also go through the Red Sea, and God closed up the waves on them and drowned the enemies of Israel. Israel saw that. Even among the young ones who hadn't seen it, they had seen bread from heaven every day. Every day there was food just waiting for them on the ground. Food that knew how to keep a calendar. Because the food on the Sabbath didn't come. And if you gathered too much food for the Sabbath, the food would go moldy on you. Food that knew what day it was. Miracle food. And you know what else? Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The clothes they were wearing, their cloaks, their garments, didn't wear out for 40 years years they had seen all that they had seen all that that should have been enough attestation that God was for them that should have been enough to bring them to faith in God that should have been enough to give them the forward-looking confidence that God was going to accomplish everything that God said he was going to accomplish that should have been enough read the next verse the next verse says you've seen all those great signs and wonders verse four yet To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Wow, what does that tell you? That tells you that even in the face of astounding miracles, if God doesn't give you the ability to understand it, you're not going to get it. All Israel saw amazing things, stuff we've never seen. Anybody here seen a pillar of smoke and a pillar of light come down out of heaven lately? I mean, when you didn't have pizza just before bed? (laughs) No, we've never seen such things. We've never seen a body of water the size of the Red Sea parted. And a million people going on dry land. We've never seen such things. Israel saw it. Israel saw it, and it still didn't bring them to faith in God. They still rejected God they still rebelled and chased foreign gods why God takes credit for it because the Lord has not given you a heart to know it understanding comprehension God didn't give you comprehension yet nor eyes that you could actually see or ears that you could actually hear God did not give you the ability to comprehend everything he has already done for you can you see now why Paul would say Yeah, God gave them a spirit of stupor. They they didn't get it. God has not given them the ability to understand. Isaiah 29, starting at verse 9, says, Be delayed or be held back and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. Speaking to the prophets of Israel, you don't really see, you don't really understand. He has shut your eyes. He has put a spirit of stupor on you, and he has covered your heads, you seers. God did that. That's where Paul picked up the idea that there were still some among Israel that had that spirit of stupor, that spirit of sleep, and that God had put that on them. The entire vision, says verse 11 of Isaiah 29, the entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, you're going to say, please read this. And he will say, I cannot because the book is sealed. And then the book will be given to the one who's illiterate, saying, Please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. What is that saying? In that Isaiah prophecy, their dullness, their sleepiness, their lack of eyes to see and ears to hear is going to be like handing somebody who can't read a book and saying, Read this book to me. And they say, I can't, I can't read. Well, how are you going to find out the truth? You're going to go to somebody who can read. And you say, Here, read this to me. And they say, I can't. The book is locked up. It's sealed. I can't open it. I can't understand it. God is saying his own revelation of himself is locked away like that so that people won't understand it unless he reveals it to people. Here, let's apply it for a moment. The only reason you understand the least little thing about God is because God chose to reveal it to you. That's
1: right.
0: He could have just as easily left you in your stupor and you'd have walked through your stupid life, not stupid life. What kind of stupid life? Your stupid life, not getting what's going on, not understanding. And He could lay evidence out in front of you. Like the entire universe, the stars of the heavens, the planetary systems, everything that men are discovering right now about cells and irreducible complexity, everything that screams creator, men look at it and they don't get it. Why? Because God has given them a spirit of stupor so that they don't get it. They don't understand it. Let's also real quick read Psalm 69, because that's what Paul is going to quote now. In Romans 9, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs over forever. Okay, He's quoting from David, but really, really interesting. This is really fascinating. you got to do a little detective work here. He's pulling out of Psalm 69, which itself is a messianic psalm. In other words, David is writing prophetically using the voice of Jesus in advance and then saying that Israel is responsible for all the pain that Jesus went through and the response is exactly what we've read will then let their table become a snare and a trap so paul is also saying that israel's rejection of their messiah is the reason that god is doing this to them psalm 69 we're going to start in verse 16 answer me o lord for your loving kindness is good answer to the greatness of your compassion and turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh draw near to my soul. And redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach. My shame. My dishonor. And all my adversaries are before you. Reproach. Has broken my heart. And I am so sick, and I look for sympathy, but there is none. I look for comforters, but I found none, and they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually, which means keep them in fear. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them, and may their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. Look at that language Israel was guilty of persecuting the one that God smote this is very much like the examples we have seen over and over of God holding people guilty for doing the very thing God intended them to do we know from the book of Acts that Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles all gathered together at Jerusalem to do whatever God's hand predestined to be done and nevertheless they're held responsible for the fact that they did it. And the response coming right from the voice of Jesus in this psalm is make their table into a snare and make their eyes grow dim so that they can't see, make their loins shake continually. Why? Verse 26, because they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten and they tell of the pain of those whom you yourself have wounded. Okay, now that very important messianic psalm about the guilt that is on Israel for the way that they treated the Son of God is exactly what Paul picks up in verse 9 of Romans 11 and says, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them and let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Okay, so now we're going to continue following the Davidic argument. Am I boring you yet? No. That, everything I've said so far this morning, that was all building you up to what Paul's going to get at here. He's going to admit that Israel stumbled. Notice that he says in verse 9 that Christ, the stumbling block, became a stumbling block and a retribution to them, they stumbled over that stone of offense. They stumbled over Christ. Now the question is, verse 11, then is God done with them? Is it over? Is it finished? Then I say, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Let's talk about the difference between stumbling and falling for just a moment so that you get the the picture words that Paul is using here. Uh, If you see a little kid, if you see Elijah running around, right, happy, running, and he kind of trips up a little bit, but he catches himself, you think that's cute. You think, oh, he stumbled. Oh, a little stumble. That's that's cute. If he stumbles and plummets to the ground, mom's going to come running. Maybe, mom, is she going to come running right away? Oh no, have you hurt yourself? Because that's a fall. If you're walking down the street, and you see a guy. Let's go with my age, walking down the street, and uh, my shoe catches in a bit of the pavement, and I stumble for a moment. You know how when people stumble over something, they always look back at it so that you know publicly that it's the sidewalk's fault and not theirs. <laughs> So a guy's walking down the street, and he he stumbles, but he keeps going. You chuckle at it. In fact, when I described it just now, you chuckled at it, because that's a stumble. But if you see a man, my A, or Tom's A, if you see him walking down the street, and he stumbles, and he plummets to the ground... You're going to run over and say, are you okay? You're going to call 911. You're going to, you're going to jump into action because that's a fall. That's the difference between a stumble and a fall. Paul's question is, they stumbled. Israel stumbled over the stumbling block. But did they fall? Is it over completely? Are they damaged by it? I say then... They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, may that never be. It's the same thing as verse 1. No, nada. Don't think it. Don't pretend it. They did not stumble to fall. They just stumbled over the stumbling stone, over Christ. But by their Transgression, this is the only place in the morning where I'm going to get a little Greek on you. Parapatoma is the word, it's translated transgression here, but it is also a word that can mean to be tripped up. It can mean to stumble. It's kind of a little interesting play on words on Paul's part. He's saying because their stumbling, their parapatoma, their transgression brought about salvation to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous. Last week, I called that the master plan. The big master plan is God has not given up on Israel. God has not rejected Israel. God has blinded Israel. And God caused Israel to stumble over the stumbling stone, over Christ, so that God could then bring Gentiles, you and me, to faith for the purpose of making Israel jealous. Now, if God's purpose for saving Gentiles is to make Israel jealous, is God done with Israel? No, there's still an ongoing relationship and purpose with Israel proven by the fact that he's saving Gentiles. The very fact that the church exists, the very fact that Gentiles are being saved is a demonstration of the Bible being true and that God is still in the process, in the master plan of dealing with Israel. We get all high and mighty. We get all full of ourselves. We start saying things like, well, yeah, God got to me, and that's the know-all and end-all of the plan. He got to me, and now he's done with Israel. No! The very fact that he got to you proves that he's still working on Israel. Do you get that? Mm -hmm. He's saving you because he's making Israel jealous. He's not done with Israel. He's still working on Israel. And so Paul says... If by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, and if that stumbling, if that transgression results in riches for the Gentiles, salvation is riches, by the way. Salvation is treasure. Amen. If, in fact, salvation coming to the Gentiles, that treasure is a result of the Parapetoma, of the stumbling, of the transgression of Israel, well then, how much more will their fulfillment be? Earlier I said to you that Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I haven't come to eradicate them utterly. I've come to fulfill them. Same idea here. How much more will the fulfillment of Israel be? What is the fulfillment of Israel? Remember I told you you were going to hear a lot of scripture this morning? I've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to talk really fast. And you're going to hear about the fulfillment of Israel. Because remember... Paul is dealing with the scripture. What does the scripture say? What do the prophets say? What are the promises that belong to Israel? That's Israel's fulfillment. Isaiah 11, starting at verse 11 says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover a second time with his hand. The remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations. And he will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's fulfillment. You get some idea of that? Paul just said, if their stumble resulted in treasures for Gentiles. How much grander is it going to be when God does the fulfillment part? Isaiah 60, verse 18, violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation. You will call your gates praise. And no longer will you have the sun for a light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give its light But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord as an everlasting light. By the way, that sounds a lot like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Then all your people will be righteous. What's this whole thing about? It's all about righteousness. It's all about Israel gaining righteousness. The Lord is going to be their God and dwell among them and be the light for day and the light by night. And your people are going to be righteous. They will be called righteous. And then they will possess their land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. How sure and definite is that promise? That's fulfillment. That's what Paul is saying is the fulfillment of Israel. Are you done now, Jim? Oh, not even starting. (laughs) Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 3, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid, nor terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, in the day of that righteous branch, when Christ returns again, in his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name, by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, Israel has always said, when referring to God, they've always said, the Lord that brought us out of Egypt. Jeremiah says, they'll no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I have driven them. And then they will live on their own soil. That's fulfillment. You getting a sense of this yet? Yes, oh, you would th- I've got to be done, right? I've got to be getting close. The clock is ticking. Oh, I'm not done. If you need to go get food and come back and sit down. I'll still be here reading. The point is, these promises are throughout the Old Testament. I've said over and over again, the prophets speak with one voice. And that one voice says, God is going to restore national Israel. Jeremiah 32, starting at verse 37, "...behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in my great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way." so that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them I will do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me that's fulfillment you getting some idea what I'm saying Ezekiel 36 starting at verse 24 I'm skipping over Jeremiah 33 6 to 9 I've skipped over Ezekiel 34. We're going right to Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 24. I'm going to take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Why? Because this is the same God who hardened them. This is the same God who gave them a spirit of stupor, is the same God who said, And I'm gonna remove the stony heart, and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh, and I'm gonna put a new spirit in you. That's fulfillment. Amos chapter 9, starting at verse 14, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities, and they will live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their own wine, and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they shall not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Micah 2.12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, the northern tribes that have been scattered all this while. I will put them together like sheep into a fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. And they will be noisy with men. Two more. Zechariah 8, starting at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. And they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. There's that whole thing, that righteousness discussion that's going on and on and on in Paul's thinking in the book of Romans. Where's the righteousness going to come from? It's going to come from God giving righteousness to Israel. Finally, Ezekiel 37, you know what? We'll get to that next week. Because that's also going to tie into the root being holy. It's going to tie into the lump being holy. It's going to tie into the natural branches who say, but we're cut off. We've been cut off by God, and God answering, "No, this is the whole house of Israel who I will raise up in the last day." Right. How many times do you have to see this? That's my point. Years ago, I was sitting with Elder Ward, and we were talking about future for Israel, of all things. And I said, "How many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true?" And he leaned forward, tamped down his pipe, and said to me, Only once. God only has to say it once for it to be true. But he says what he's going to do with Israel over and over and over and over again. And Paul picks up all of that stuff, imports it into the New Testament in the book of Romans and in all the books of the Bible. But here where he's discussing Israel and God's relationship with Israel, he keeps stating most emphatically, God is not done with Israel. So our theology has to be God is not done with Israel. And if somebody says God is done with Israel... You have every right to say, do you even read the Bible? Do you know what the scripture says? Because that's how Paul defends his theology. You got it? Got it sir. Okay, I am all talked out. My voice is leaving me now. So, you know what I'm thinking about doing? Go ahead, ask me. Ask, Jim, what are you thinking about doing? Yeah, thanks for asking, I'll tell you. What I'm thinking about doing is, we're in chapter 11 in Romans, and there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans, and uh, eventually, we're going to finish the book of Romans, eventually, at some point in life, if Jesus doesn't come first, and this is our second time through the book of Romans, plus I've done the Israelology from Romans, so this is actually on the website, my third pass through this information on Israel from Romans. And so I've been thinking, what should we do next? And uh, I thought, well, I can't just go back and keep repeating the books that we've already taught through. I guess I can, but I don't necessarily want to. What can I do that's different? What can I do that's challenging? What can I do that will keep me on my toes? So here's what I'm going to do, since you asked. I think I'm going to do a series of topical messages. I don't know how many, and I don't know for how long but I want to talk about topics from the Bible. Which topics, you might ask? That's up to you. That's why I bring it up. You've got between now and Romans 16 to ask what topics you'd like to have talked about. I mean, there are some that are very obvious. I am going to talk again about biblical New Covenant giving. There, that's a good topic we can talk about. We may at some point talk law and grace again. So it's not going to be like the systematic theology series that I did, but it occurs to me that in 19 years of standing here, I've never really talked about evangelization. We might talk about that. So the floor is wide open to you in the room and you on the internet. Send me emails. And you in the room, send me emails. Don't come up and say something to me, because I'm old and I'll forget. Send me an email saying, here are some things I think you ought to talk about. And then I'm going to go refer to that list week by week by week, and I'll talk about as many of those requests as we can talk about. And so tell me what you'd like to see us discuss in a topical way. And I don't know how many weeks, months, years that's going to take to do the topical series, but I think that's what we're going to do next. Okay?
1: okay.
0: There, are you happy you asked? Okay. Good. So, good. Are there any questions about what you heard this morning? Yes, sir. There's an old phrase that maybe should be resurrected. Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christian is a good phrase, isn't it? Christianity is based in Judaism. And when you divorce it from its Judaistic roots... You come up with a Christianity you don't know from the Bible, and it's not about us. And it's not about us. Anything else?
1: I've heard in in Jerusalem that there's a lot of dissension here uh, between the Christians and the Jews, uh, different sects of the Jews, Um, and I was just wondering how did they reconcile this this
0: passage? I guess the Jews you know with their relationship with the christians who they who they hate you know because of their their belief you know that's been going on ever since the time of um, paul writing yeah. that uh for a while he was staying in corinth with um uh-huh the other tent makers <laughs> priscilla and aquila my brain's fried now Because for a while, the emperor threw all the Jews out of Rome, and that's why Priscilla and Aquila were in Corinth, and Paul stayed with them. And then later, when Paul writes to the Romans, as we're reading now, he says hi to Priscilla and Aquila, because they've come back to Rome. Because the fight between the Jewish believers and the Jewish Christians in Rome became so big that the riots were happening in the streets, and ultimately, they just had to be thrown out of Rome. And so the fact that there is still conflict going on in Jerusalem or anywhere else between Christian Jews and law-keeping Jews has been around for 2,000 years. And you say, how will it be resolved? It'll only be resolved when the Prince of Peace comes and resolves it. I mean, the Bible says they're going to say peace, peace, but there won't be any peace, not till he brings it. Mm-hmm. And remember, you're talking about people who, are, who have a spirit of slumber over them. So they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. And you know how hard people will fight for what they believe, even if they're ignorant in what they believe. They'll fight for it anyway. Especially if they're ignorant ignorant of it, they'll really fight for it. (laughs) Steve is going to come up now and lead you in a hymn. 266, we're going to sing, Fade, fade, each earthly joy.